open up to 1 Kings uh, chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20, and we begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. And then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. We come now to this chapter here in 1 Kings, and uh, it's a crazy chapter. We learn from Ahab, we learn some of the things that he did right, uh, some of the things that he did wrong. Um, Overall, Ahab was a bad king, a wicked king there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And at this juncture in time, Syria now is kind of rising up, and they are going to be the most formidable enemy of Israel. You know, and I know that um, sometimes, you know, we go through life as Christians and we're living in America and things are kind of cool, but it's important for us to know that we have a ruthless enemy. You know, things are going pretty good in Israel. Ahab, in one sense, was blessed, although they're just coming off a, a famine, a three and a half years of drought. Generally speaking, they're, they're not doing too bad. But in that condition, man, the enemy comes in, and man, he comes in like a flood. And we're going to see that he just wants to strip them of everything. You know, and I think for us, it's important to remember that. You know, we're living in this world, and we are not of this world. The world hates us. And the Bible says that, therefore, we're in this fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against rulers of the darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And what they want is they want you, they want your wife, they want your kids, they want your husband, they want your silver, they want your gold, they want everything, everything they want. The enemy wants everything, wants to strip you of everything that's good in your life. And unless we're really, really careful, we're going to see that the enemy will succeed. You know, Syria, again, is the enemy. They gather their forces together. We read that in in verse 1. Notice it says uh, that he gathered all his forces. 32 kings were with him. Horses and chariots. And they come up, it says there in verse 1, and they besiege Samaria. In other words, they surround Samaria and they make war against it. You know, it's interesting. About 50 years earlier, now some people think it might be the same king. More than likely it's not. But about 50 years earlier, if you remember, Asa, the king in the southern kingdom, he took silver and gold and he gave it to the Syrians and he hired them that they might fight on Judah's behalf. Now, it's 50 years later, more than likely this is Ben-Hadad II 
And he learned from his dad what these people do, Israel and Judah, how they'll take silver and gold and they'll give it to us. And so they come now and they ask for silver and gold. It's interesting. And they figure we got it from the south, now we'll get it from the north. Not only will we get his money, we'll also get his family. Notice there again in verse 3, he says, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. You know, and I just want to remind you guys of the way the enemy operates. To be honest with you, I don't really care too much if he takes my silver and gold. You know, although, you know, there is something to that. I think that when we're good stewards, in one sense, God can use that for his glory. Some of you here, you're real good. Of course the enemy would love to take your job away. Of course he'd like to strip you of everything so that you can't be generous to others, you know. But it's okay in one sense. If you want to take my silver and gold, my house, my cars, all that kind of stuff, that's all right. But my wife, my husband, my children. And then I think we all know that that is the devil's target. Does he not want my son? Does he not want my daughter? Does he not want my wife? Does he not want to ruin and destroy my marriage, it might survive, but will it thrive? See, these are the things the enemy is trying to come in and take away, and we cannot allow him to. We've got to fight it with everything we are. We've got to turn off the TV and get on our knees and pray. We've got to pray like crazy. We've got to seek the Lord. We've got to study the Bible like we've never studied the Bible in our whole life. We've got to stay up late into the wee hours of the morning or maybe wake up early. I don't know. Something's got to change. How are you fighting for your family? Are you doing the same old thing you used to do? How about fasting? Has the Lord laid that on your, law, on your heart? You know, we've we got to make that commitment. Nehemiah 4.14, I always share this with you guys. You know, where Nehemiah said, you've got to fight for your family. You know, how are we doing that? We've got to do that with spiritual weapons, Right? Because the enemy wants to come in and, and you know, he says right here, your, your, your loveliest wives and your children are mine. Now, if the enemy came into your house and asked for your family, what would you say? I know most of us here, <laughs> most of us here, we'd say no, right? We'd say no. <laughs> but look at what Ahab does. In verse 4, And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, all I and all that I have are yours. You know, in one sense, he kind of concedes. He kind of concedes. You want to know why? Because he, think he thinks, I, I can't win anyways. You know, he sees all these chariots, all these horses, the cavalry, the soldiers, the multitudes, 32 kings comes against him, and he figures, you know what? There's no way I'm going to win this battle. And so he says, I guess I'm going to have to give up. And I would say to you today, man, do not give up. You know, we see Ahab unfortunately did. He agreed. He concedes not only with the silver and gold again, but now it's his family. And we can't do that, church. We need to fight for what's right. As a matter of fact, I like uh, Nehemiah again. Let's go over there to Nehemiah chapter 4. And Nehemiah is before Psalms, just in case you don't know where it is, I understand. But Nehemiah chapter 4 in verse 7, it says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, 
the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. You know, whether you're doing good or you're doing bad, but especially if you're doing good, the enemy is furious. Furious, right? And so they come and they, 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 they gather together, the, the enemies. And it says in verse 9, Though, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. They're, they're doing their part, right? I mean, but things are happening, man. The enemy is coming against them. And you know, I don't know how the enemy comes against you, but usually it's in the form of some type of lie, but it could be other things. He might hit you physically. He might hit you financially. He might hit you emotionally. You know, he might, you know, use somebody and speak through somebody and they come against you. The devil has his tools. He has his instruments and they attack. They attack us, right? And then we read, though, in verse 10 that Judah said the strength of the laborers is failing and there's there's so much rubbish that we are not, not able to, to build the wall. And so there's difficulties from the outside. There's difficulties on the inside. And it's not an easy place. It says in verse 11, And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. We know we just want this work to stop. That's what we want, Right? And so it was in verse 12, when the Jews who dwelt near them came, that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. You know, the enemy will try to intimidate you. He will try to manipulate you. And he is cunning, and you think you're so smart. Oh yeah, I'm smart. You know, sometimes I, I, I look around, and I, and I know, and I, I talk to people, and I see people, and, you know, I'm not thinking of you, but the person next to you, maybe behind you, and I'm thinking, you know what? They think they're so smart. And, and, and a lot of times, I just see, so, I see what the devil's doing. But the Lord needs to show you. The Lord needs to show you. We need to know how cunning the enemy is. You know, he comes in, I'm just in intimidation, manipulation, Verse 13, therefore, Nehemiah says, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And then we read this classic passage. And I looked and arose, and I said to the nobles and the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives. And your houses. You see, the enemy is going to come in and he goes after the family. He goes after the ministry. He goes after the country. And all that's necessary is for good men to do nothing, for good men to lose heart, for good men to lose faith. And God says, No, you got to fight. You got to fight. And, and so I would just ask you, how are you fighting? You know, we, we're going to see today that we need to be offensive, we need to be defensive, we need to be cooperating with our Creator, aggressive. 
But, you know, you can picture your family on the other end of that rope and maybe it's tied to them and you are pulling. And then there's the other side, the enemy's pulling. And it's a tug of war going on for your family. But, of course, we need to be strong ourselves, right? And so when you look at 1 Kings 20 and I see, you know, the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, come in and say, hey, I want your wife and I want your kids. And then I see, you know, right here, you know, Ahab says, okay, I guess you, know, you can have them, right? I just think, no, we cannot do that. Back in 1 Kings 20, just in case you're wondering, however, the enemy will not be content. It's not like, okay, I'll give him this and then he won't, he won't bug me anymore. No, he will always bug you. He will always come after you. Not a day will go by when the enemy will not do something to push you away from God and the calling on your life. He's aggressive. He's relentless. And so, you know, Ahab says, okay, I guess you can have those wives and kids. And he thinks it's all over. But look what happens next. The king of Israel answered and said, I'm sorry, verse 5, the messengers came back and they said, thus speaks Ben-Adad. Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, you shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands, and, and, and they'll take it. I mean, he's not content with whatever it is he has so far. You guys know that, right? You know that he's going for the jugular, right? You know he's going for the death blow. You know that ultimately he wants to take you and your kids to hell. He wants to stop the work. And he will not stop unless we do. See, we need to remember that the enemy is never content. Oh, you got your silver and your gold? Yeah, but let me tell you what. You know, I'm also going to send my servants and they're going to search your house, the house of your servants, and whatever you think is good, they're going to take it. And not only that, but we're, we're going to do it, you know, not next week, not next month, we're going to do it tomorrow. And so what he found out was that this was something that would happen right away. And what we find is the enemy is trying to strip us of everything, all of our children, all of our marriage, our job, our joy, our land, our love, our house, our home, our heart, and on and on and on and on. And I, and I just pray that we would see that now and that we would just make a stand and say, okay, God, I'm not going to let any more, I'm not going to let him have any more land. Because this is what happens now. Ahab, he kind of, his eyes are open a little bit. And I like what he does right here. Look at verse 7. It says, So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, I like this, Do not listen or consent. What does Ahab do? He asks for counsel from the elders, right? He goes and he talks to these guys. And we need to do that in our life. You know, we need to, 
You know, seek godly counsel. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. You know, we need counsel. We need biblical counsel, and I think we need elderly biblical counsel. You know, that's what the elders are. They're people who are mature in the Lord, and they know how to take the Bible and apply it to our life. You know, that's what happens right here. Proverbs 24, 6 says, By wise counsel, you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. You see, we all need Christian counselors. We all need spiritual support. We all need friends who can assess our situation and offer words of wisdom. You know, and, and you know, I, I don't know, you know what you're going through. You know, maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling with pornography. Maybe you're struggling in your prayer life. Maybe you're struggling in spending time with the Lord or even in the way that you spend your money. You know, I don't know what it is. But what we find is that, you know, because we all struggle with something, when we get accountable, when we begin to open up with someone and say, you know what, this is an area of my life that I'm really hurting and I love... You know, talking to people who are transparent, it, it kind of makes me break down my walls and I'm able to be transparent with them as well. But when you're transparent, then you're actually going to have someone there who can help you in your situation. You know, what we find, many people are not open to opinions other than their own and in various ways, intentionally sometimes and unintentionally, consciously or even subconsciously, we find our ways to keep our distance lest someone see that we have serious problems and essentially rather, you know, keep our pride for now and lose our country or our family or our ministry. And what we find is the Lord says, no, you got to find friends. You got to be friends. You got to have counsel. You got to be able to open up with someone like me. You know, it's hard. It's hard for me, you know, especially like a, a pastor. Like a pastor is supposed to be perfect, right? A pastor, he doesn't have sins, right? You guys all know that, right? <laughs> who can I open up to? You know, who can I talk to? Who can I share like these are my struggles with? I can't really do that with my wife because. Well, I, I'm, you know, just, you know, just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Let me put it that way. No, actually, I can. You know, but she's probably going to be um, maybe too nice to me. And so what I need is I need brothers in my life, someone I can go to and I can share with them, you know, hey, here's my devotional life. Here's what's going on in my prayers. Here's what's going on when I was reading my Bible. Here's the things the Lord's showing me. This is the way that maybe I didn't have a good week with my wife praying or reading with my kids. Whatever it is, I have friends like that, that I know love me, and I can be honest with them. And they won't beat me up if I mess up, but they can share with me things, you know, that I need to hear, and we can go to them for counsel. This is what Ahab did. He found himself in a difficult situation. And then, even though it wasn't written yet, Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens. Right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. And so he had some friends. He says, hey, this is what the devil's trying to do to my life. What do you think? And then I like what they said. Two things that are so cool. You know, we can say this. He says, don't listen to the enemy and don't, consent 
And I would say that to you guys. Don't listen to him. He's lying to you. He's lying to you, and he's lying to you every single day, and you're like dwelling on it. Oh, yeah. And you're feeding those thoughts, and you're living in the world that he's creating. You're playing his game. Don't listen to him. And don't consent. I love that advice, because I go, I'm there. A lot of times I get those thoughts, where did that come from? And then what I remember, the Bible says to bring every thought into obedience, to bring every thought into captivity, right? Don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to him and don't consent to the things that he's trying to do, like making you give up. No way, no way, man. We've got a, a country to fight for, a ministry to fight for. Uh, we've got a family to fight for, Right? And so it's so cool as they, as they gave him this advice, Ahab, he listened a, a little bit, he did. Not completely, he listened a little bit. Look at verse 9. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. See, he kind of went halfway. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. And then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, that God do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. And so the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. I love this. I love this. I don't like the fact that Ahab still kind of compromised. He said, oh, it's okay, you can have some of my wives and some of my kids. No, you guys fight for every single one of your children. Fight for all of them. Fight for your marriage. And don't just say, well, I'm good with my kids. My marriage is, ah, no, you want it all. You want your family to be right on, sold out, surrendered, completely committed, right? Ahab kind of vacillated in that. But it's kind of cool, and looking at what happened right here, you know, we find that Ben-Hadad, you know, finds out that Ahab makes a situation to make a stand. And notice there in verse 10, he says, you know what? He's vowing to say this. He says, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to annihilate Samaria. I mean, he doesn't just want the Israelites to bite the dust. I mean, he wants them, you know, to be dust. So severely, he says right there in verse 10, that, you know, each soldier will just have a handful of dust left when I'm done with them. And, and what do we see there? We see a glimpse of what the enemy wants to do to us, the glimpse into the degree of the hatred the devil has for each and every one of us. You guys see that? You know, and I don't know if it's necessarily um, Ben-Hadad, because remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but it is the devil behind Ben-Hadad who wants to annihilate the Jews. He wants them all to die, right? And that's what the, that's what the devil does towards us as well. We're in this vicious battle. It kind of reminds me of Peter's predicament. Remember Jesus said to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, when I think of that, I think, man, that doesn't sound good. We know that our enemy is not just godless, he's ruthless. 
And of course, his ultimate goal means that he wants to make us fall away. I love, however, verse 11. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. What's he saying right there, you guys? You know, he's saying, like, don't count your chickens until all your eggs are hatched, that type of thing. What's he really saying? What's he really saying? It's not over. You know, I see all your chariots, and I see all your cavalry, and I see all your soldiers, and I know who we are. We're nothing. We're wicked. We're weak. But it's not over. It's not over. And I think that we have to have that hope in our hearts. It's not over. I don't know what your situation is, what our situation is. You know, sometimes things don't look too good and the odds are against us, so to speak. But you want to know something? It's not over. Our life is not over. You know, and what we find, man, is that's what Ahab's saying right here, man. There's still hope. There's still hope. And I think that God was blessed by that. Now, later on, when we study the life of Ahab, we're going to see at the very end that he was, a, he was a bad king. It says specifically in the Bible because Jezebel stirred him up, his wife. So you got to be careful you don't marry the wrong person. Okay, I've told you guys that before, right? <laughs> but in Ahab, there was something that, you know, God saw that he just kept reaching out to this guy. Unfortunately, he didn't listen, and that will be one of our lessons today. But he had some, some bright moments here. And so when he says, it's not over, I'm not giving up yet. You know, don't you think this is over yet? I'm not giving up yet. So God says, okay, cool. And we read in verse 12, suddenly, I mean, verse 12, and it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. But suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You know, when the enemy attacks, you guys, I wonder, just, I wonder, you guys, like, how is the enemy attacking you? If you're here today and you're like, I don't know, <laughs> then you know what? You need to get back on your knees and you need to start praying for spiritual discernment. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely an assault. There's always an attack. There are always the lies of Lucifer that come our way, right? And we have to you know, lift up that shield of faith with which we quench every fiery dart of the wicked one. But the enemy attacks. Usually it's through lies. Sometimes God allows the enemy to invade, invade your space and you get hit with an unexpected bill and the car breaks down, the sink leaks, the roof leaks. All the same week you lose your job or, or maybe you lose your health the same week you lose your health insurance or maybe your brother's mad at you, your sister's mad at you, even your dog starts barking at you. I don't know. You know, just think you're surrounded. The sky begins to fall. 
But then it's so cool because then the word of the Lord, it comes to us, the promise of the Lord. And what does God say? I promise to deliver you and I, and I promise to prove myself to you. And if I could just say this tonight, and I hope it comes across okay, whatever your situation is, if you stay focused on the Lord, then you will prevail. Now, does that mean that everything that they do is going to be what you wanted them to do? No, because they have to make a choice, right? We are called to self-control, not others' control. But what we find is that when you're focused on the Lord, then God promises to give you the victory. And I believe this. I believe that as you're going through life, that God will speak to you. And I, you know, I've talked to parents sometimes, and I'll use this as an illustration, where they tell me, God told me that my children will serve the Lord. And I'm standing on his promise. Now, what would you do if a parent told you that? You know, a lot of people would say, well, you know what, you can't say that because the Bible says, you know, this and, you know. But, but you know what? How do you know that the living God has not spoken to them? See, this is what happened right here. The Lord spoke to Ahab. And the Lord said, I want you to know that I'm going to wipe out this whole army. I promise you. And I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that sometimes God wants to speak to us personal promises. God wants to give to us very, very personal messages. But you're not letting him. You're not seeking him the way that you should. And I don't say that to take a whip and you know, hurt you or you know, beat you. But I will say this, that you got to pray more. you got to get on your knees. When he wakes you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're like, oh, I can't handle this, I can't sleep, and whatever the case may be, maybe it's because he wants you to go and get on your knees. I don't know. But I do know, like today I was reading Daniel and I was just so amazed at how, you know, when the, you know, the king was wiping out all the wise men and Daniel was going to be wiped out too, that he said, hold on a second, Let, you know, give us a chance and we'll go pray and we'll seek the Lord. And the Lord gave Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he gave them the dream and he gave them the interpretation of the dream. He gave them a very, very personal message. What's your personal message? What's the Lord been saying to you that's not just a general thing, but it's a personal thing because you've really been seeking Him the way that you should? You see, I think that we need that, especially in the days that we're living in. This is what Ahab gets right here. He gets a personal message, and I want you to know, God says, I'm going to deliver them into your hand. And as a result of that, you are going to know that I am the Lord. 
You know, and God had already proven himself to Ahab. We saw that back in chapter 18. Remember when the fire came down? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But he's so graciously willing to do that again. And maybe you need a fresh reminder of how awesome your God is and how personal he is. God says, I'm going to prove myself because I'm going to give you the victory. And so Ahab, what does Ahab do? Ahab says, no way. No way. No, he doesn't say that. Look what he says in verse 14. By whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, well, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Me? Yeah, you. But I'm, I'm a chicken. <laughs> I can't do this. Well, that's the whole point. This is a funky plan. You know, who's going to lead? The young, the young guys. The young guys. Why the young guys? They don't have any experience. They don't know what's going on. They haven't been out there on the battlefield. God says, that's the whole point. I want to take the weak ones. And I want to flex my muscles and I want to show the victory. That way, when it's all said and done, God gets the glory. Right? And I see that, you know, I see that in my pastor. You know, I was listening to a study by Pastor Chuck the other day. If you get a chance, you can listen to it. First Samuel chapter 22, uh, verse 3. Chuck does a topical study on all the, all the mighty men of David, all the guys that were in debt and discouraged and discontent that gathered around David, all the leftovers, all the guys that nobody really wanted. And God raised up a mighty army. And then Chuck started going down the list of all the pastors of Calvary Chapel, and he used Raw, and he talked a lot about Raw. <laughs> he said, man, this guy couldn't even read. God wanted to do a work in West Covina, so what did he do? He chose a guy that couldn't even read. He chose a guy that with so much hatred and anger in his heart, and you know, he, oh, and just, he just went on. And look at the work that God has done. Now, some people don't like that. They're like, well, you got to be like a perfect teacher and a, and a perfect man and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, praise God for those guys that are like the best teachers and most eloquent guys in the world, you know, but I don't know. Sometimes you look at that and you think, well, look at how good he is. Instead of looking at this guy over here and say, man, look at how great God is. You know, what's the plan? Well, here's the plan. You march around the city six times, and the seventh time you start shouting like crazy people. <laughs> and, you know, what that, yeah, Jericho, the walls fall down. Well, here's the plan. Get in and get rid of all your soldiers. Get rid of these guys. Tell them to go. Tell them to go. They're afraid, then get out of here. And then when it's just a few, you watch what I do. And what you got to do, Gideon, with your 300 men, you take you know, this little jar of clay, you put a little candle in there, and you just break it. And you say, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. What a funky battle plan. <laughs> but what happened? God gave them the victory. I want to see victories in my life that cannot be explained. Right? Because if you can explain it, God didn't do it. 
And so here's the plan. Take all the young guys. Not the older guys. Not the guys who are seasoned. Not the guys that you think would be tipped. No, take the young guys. And put them, and you, you lead it, Ahab. Chicken, you do it, okay? <laughs> and so, you know, that's the plan. It's interesting right here. The word for young, it says he mustered the young leaders. The young leaders in verse 14. It's the same word used for David. When David came out, he was just a kid. You know, he was green behind the ear, wet behind the ears. Is that what they say? Yeah, he wet behind the ears. You know, um, kind of like me, even today, I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm trying so hard to learn along the way. Although I'm not young anymore, I'm not old enough. And I don't know, I'm kind of like in this weird place in my life, you know? But all I know is that David, this is what they said, David, you know, Saul said, you're young and inexperienced. This guy's been fighting all his life. And then when Goliath saw David, he said, what about this guy? He's a dog. He was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. And what ends up happening? God gets the victory and God gets the glory. And it's imperative. And here's another point, you guys. When Ahab hears the plan, he obeys. He obeys the plan. In verse 15, then he mustered the young leaders of the prince provinces and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000 and so they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. And the young leaders of the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. And so he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. And then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. And so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots, and they killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. What happened, you guys? is they got the victory because they were obedient and they took that step of faith. And I was talking to my kids the other day, and, uh, and I know you guys know this, but I just want to say it again, okay? The way that life works for us as a Christian is, number one, you get to know God, and you know Him by knowing His Word. You get to know God, and you interact with Him, and you get to know Him. Look at how strong He is. You know how much he can bench press? You get to know God. Look at how loving he is. Look at how gracious he is. Look at how holy he is. You get to know God. And when you get to know God in his word, you know what's going to happen? You're going to love God. And you're going to fear God. You've got to love God and you've got to fear God. You get to know God in his word, you will love him and you will fear him. If you love him and you fear him, what will you do? You'll obey him. Some of you here, maybe you're not obeying him because you don't love him. You don't fear him. But if you love him and you fear him, you'll obey him. And if you obey him, then he will bless you. 
You see, that's the code of the Creator. That's the law of the Lord built in within His universe. And the way it operates is that He blesses obedience. You know, and sometimes it's not always that easy. You've got to hear His voice. When we, you know, moved into uh, the park, we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. It wasn't in the budget. The math did not work. But God said, I want you to move. And so we moved into the park, and guess what? The offerings went up. God provided. So when we, when we came to this building, we couldn't afford it. It wasn't in the budget. But God said, I want you to go, and I want you to get a step of faith, and, and you move in. And then when we came in, the Lord began to provide. Now you talk to anybody, and you know most people will say, well, that's not what you're supposed to do. You know, it's got to be within the budget. And there are some churches that have done things like that and they went bankrupt. So what happened? We weren't listening to the Lord. But when you listen to the Lord, He'll tell you to do things that might not be what you expect. What you got to do is you got to listen to the Lord and you have to have a personal relationship with Him. And God says to Ahab, I want you to go. You lead, have the young guys in front of you. And you watch what I'll do, I'll give you the victory. And God gave them the victory. And so we read in verse 22, after this is all done, the prophets came to the king of Israel and they said to him, go strengthen yourself, take note and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. And so if you win a battle, is it over? No way, huh? So there's time for celebration, but that time of celebration must also be a time of preparation. Why? Because he's going to come again, right? And so that's what he says. Hey, I want you to make sure that you get ready because he's going to come up against you in the springtime. And so we read in verse 23 that the servants of the king of Syria, they said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, Surely we will be stronger than they. And so do this. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice, and they did so. And so the enemy comes up with a strategy and he says, you know what, and in those days we know that that was their mentality, like this God, you know, ruled over this region, and the only reason the Jews won, it was kind of a, you know, I don't know, I guess you could say a, a, they had home court advantage, you know, and, uh, and so he's the God of the hills, not the plains, he's the God of the hills, not the valleys. And I think that sometimes we kind of get into that same mentality. Well, he's the God of the past, not the present. He's the same God. He's the the exact same God. And he helps you through this trial, and you're like, whoa, look at what the Lord did. But then you're in this new trial, and you're like, man, I don't know. And God is saying, listen, I'm the same God. I'm the God of all the earth. You know, these guys thought they could come against them, and they did come a little stronger. You know, the first time they came, they came against them with kings. But notice this time, not using kings, 
He says, dismiss the kings there in verse 24 and put captains in their places. And so now these would be trained generals, trained soldiers. And so I think that, you know, the opposition gets a little more intense. And that's what happens in our life. And so in verse 26, it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given positions, provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. And then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude in your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And real quick, you guys, and I know we're running out of time, but let me just share this with you. God is the God of the hills. And I think we all kind of know that, huh? When we're up on the mountaintop and we feel so good, oh, I feel great today, you know? And at the end of the day, you put a happy face in your journal, right? Because it was just a great day. But do you ever feel like you're, you ever get like down, like you're in the valley? And then those other days where it's just plain? It's interesting, those are the three he mentions here, the hills and the plains and the valleys. Can I ask you a question? In all those places, is God the same? He is. And we have to let him be our rock. We have to anchor ourselves to him, the one who never changes. You know, the enemy comes against them. And these guys are just, there's just two little flocks, man. They're just these little goats against all these people. But God says, you want to know something? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the victory again. And here's the thing that I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you that the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. How, do you understand that yet? Has that sunk in yet? Do you understand the Lord, he is God, in your life yet? Because God's just trying to teach him over and over and over again. Chapter 18, chapter 19, first victory, second victory, you name it. And so what ends up happening, it says in verse 29, and they encamped opposite each other for seven days. And so it was on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber. You see, God gave them the victory there. So amazing, so against all odds. But what ends up happening is that we're going to see Ahab doesn't complete this victory. It says in verse 31, Then his servants, they said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, and here's what Ahab says, is he still alive? He is my brother. Wait a minute. 
He's your brother? I mean, this is a guy that, that just wanted to destroy you and destroy your family and destroy this country. He's your brother? Something's going on here, right? And so we find right here, he says, um, now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him and they quickly grasped at his word and said, your, your brother Ben-Hadad. And, and so he said, go and bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. And so Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father I will restore and, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, well, I will send you away with this treaty. And so he made a treaty with him and he sent him away. What happened right there, you guys? Big mistake. Big mistake. He aligns himself with the enemy. That's what he does. I mean, straight out, no bones about it, right? I mean, and you read that and it's just crazy. The lack of spiritual discernment. Sometimes we see that, and you know, I just trip out. What happened after the victory? After the victory, Ahab did not give God the glory. You don't see that anywhere. I mean, God gave him this tremendous victory. He didn't give God any of the glory. And so now when he's facing a decision, he doesn't really seek the Lord, right? And so he's just thinking, you know what? Maybe I could be friends with this guy. Some people think probably because he was afraid of the Assyrians because they were growing strong. A lot of people think, well, he needed Syria to be his friend. No, we can't make treaties with sin. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, or your right hand, cut it off. We can't be merciful with those things that are our very enemies. But unfortunately, we see that Ahab made the same mistake that who made? Do you guys remember earlier? Saul. Remember how he allowed the king of the Amalekites to, to live? God said, hey, I don't want him to live. What did he do? He allowed him to live, and in the end, he got killed by an Amalekite. Guess who's going to kill Ahab in two chapters? The Syrians, right? Because if you don't kill that sin, then that sin will kill you. And so the Lord wants to teach him a lesson, and he's still trying to reach this guy. It says in verse 35, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. And that's kind of a tough situation, huh? Imagine if I went up to Sean and said, Hey, Sean, hit me. Just go ahead, as the word of the Lord has hit me, and he'd be like, no, and said, okay, then you're going to die, and that lion's going to eat you right now, you know? And he goes out, sorry, I didn't mean to you know, make that personal like that, but, you know, that's, that's what was going on, you know? But here's the thing, it was the word of the Lord. He, says, he said, by the word of the Lord, how important it is that we obey the Lord. So the next guy, he learns a lesson, and it says in verse 37, he found another man, he said, strike me, please, and so the man struck him, inflicting a wound, and the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. 
Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and he said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And so he wants to get the king's attention. He's got this wound. Uh, the king is probably thinking he is really a soldier. And what ends up happening is, is as he's there, you know, the, he's talking to the king. He says, this is a situation. I was in battle. I was supposed to guard this guy, but I kind of got distracted. Now he's gone. And so King Ahab says, then, then you're, you got to die. You got to die, right? And so what ends up happening the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. He did it right away. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. And so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. You know, when you see right here at the end, the visual lesson was clear communication for Ahab. You know, and it kind of reminds me of the time when Nathan came to David and he told him a story and David pronounced judgment. And then Nathan said, you're the man. You remember that? There's a similarity here, but there is also a distinction. Because when David realized that he had sinned, he repented. He repented, right? But that's not what Ahab does. When Ahab realizes that he's the man, that he had pronounced judgment upon himself, what does he do? He goes home, and the Bible says in verse 43, he was sullen and displeased. The Hebrew words right here refer to someone who is stubborn, rebellious, resentful, bad-tempered, sulky, and gloomy. It refers to an individual who's angry to the point of rage. And what we find in Ahab's life is something, and you know, for me too, you guys, I, I want to take it to heart. It kind of works like this. He tasted so much. I mean, think about all that he saw. He tasted so much. But because he didn't really turn to the Lord, he wasted so much. And I just pray, you guys, that as we go through life and as we're seeking the Lord and we're experiencing all these things, that that wouldn't happen to us, man. That the things that the Lord wants to do, that he wants to change, that he wants to rearrange, how he wants us to get to know him in order that we might love him and fear him and obey him and be blessed by him, that you and I, we really would, um, we would experience those things as Christians. Because God wants to bless your life. God wants to use your life. God has a plan for your life. But, but so does the enemy. And I know that you guys here, most of you here, if not all of you, are Christians. And I thank God for that. I pray you would just enjoy your relationship with the Lord. But just in case, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're hurting, you're going through things, 
You need God to forgive you of your sins. And I pray that tonight would be the night of salvation. That you would know Jesus died for you on that cross. And the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. God loves you. He died for you. He was put in a grave and he rose the third day. And all you have to do is surrender your life to him. You turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be that day for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us to study your word, Lord. So much here. Lord, I know the enemy is cunning. Lord, I pray.